Well, good morning, church family. You are the hardy folk. That's a good Minnesota statement right there. Some of you are like, hardy? What, what are you calling us? But it means you're ready and you survived the weather. Um, if you are visiting us or this is your first time here at Austin Oaks Church, we want to let you know we strive to be a church that's simply all about Jesus because we believe that when you encounter him, it changes everything. And that's why we strive to help everybody to meet, know, and follow Jesus. Now, again, like as I want to set up this morning, we started this new year by just kind of thinking about like how do we come together as a family in an intimate setting. And so this is kind of like a little rally season as a family as we're going to kind of like talk about some themes and some things like that that we believe the Lord is going to emphasize in our church this year. And so some of you are going to be sad and some of you are going to be so grateful for this. Alana, I'm going to move your mic. No big deal. Sorry. Um, that this is the last Sunday we're going to be seating like this. <laughs> so some of you are like, thank the Lord. And some of you are like, wait, I love this. Can we do this forever? And so, no, we, we wanted to do this on purpose for an intentional reason. Um, next Sunday, we're actually going to be starting our Revelation series. And we're going to be, we're really excited about this. We've been praying for this for about a year plus. This has been sitting there going, we want to do Revelation. We want to do Revelation. It just wasn't right until we all of a sudden feel like this is the time. And so I want to encourage you, if you have not grabbed this on your way in, that's okay. They're going to be accessible every single week. We are primarily going to be going through this letter almost all of 2024, okay? There's a lot in this thing, so we can't do this in like five weeks, but we're going to jump in and then we'll do it for like six weeks and we're going to pop out and talk about something else and kind of pop back in. But we love these scripture journals because that way you can just bring this with you and you can take notes and that way we can kind of like be focused. But this morning, I want to encourage you, if you have this, towards the back are just a bunch of notes, okay, like blank pages for notes and all kind of stuff. I want to encourage you, if, if you are the note-taking type, to Take note of this morning's message, okay? Because it will be useful and a practical tool for you as we continue to study uh, Revelation. And the reason being is that this morning, we're going to be looking at how to study Scripture, okay? We're going to be looking at how do we come to the Bible, how do we strive to understand what it meant then and there in order for us to understand what it means in the here and now. And the reason why I felt the need to do this is because I'm telling you, okay, like there's a lot of reasons why people are apprehensive or pastors are apprehensive to preach on Revelation is because everybody thinks they're an expert in Revelation, Everybody watches the news and can go, this is the Antichrist, and this is the symbol, and this is that. It's like, no, 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 no. We have to be good students of Scripture. We have to understand what it meant then and there in order for it to give meaning and hope and encouragement and challenge and, and alignment in the here and now, okay? And so last week, we started talking about, like, what is it that we believe the Lord is stirring up in our church? Like, what do we believe that he's asking us to focus on as a church in 2024? And it was by faith. Faith is always important, 
Faith is always a vital aspect, but there's, this is a season where I feel like the Lord is asking us as a church to lean into this a little bit more. And if you were with us last week, we started talking, I used the illustration about the magic eye. Some of you are like, you have another book? Yes, I have three of them. I gave one away last week. And so now this is the order. If you want it, I'll give it to you. That way I have one more. But the magic eye was like this craze where like to me, I just see this chaos of color and and images and symbols, and the whole premise is, if you look at this correctly, there's an image that will pop out at you, and you'll be able to see it. And right now, I'm willing to bet there's probably one or two of you that's looking at this and be like, oh, look, there's an elephant right there, and I'm just going to call you a heretic, and you're a liar, because still to this day, I've never been able to see it, okay? And so this is the illustration, was just like, if I try to look at this, and I can't see it, but then all of a sudden, you're like, you know what? I see it. It's an elephant. I'll be like, how can you say that? What's your proof in saying that there's an elephant here? Because I don't see it, but you're saying you do. Where's the proof? And the proof or the evidence of that is, I see it. So that's why we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says that now faith is the reality or the substance. It's the assurance, the conviction of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are unseen. So it's like it, the fact that you see this is evidence, and that's how it is to live by faith. Faith takes hold of the promises of God, and the, that's where the hope is. Like faith is the substance, it's tangible, it's material, it's weighty, it's reality, and the hope that we have, it brings these words of God in, all of the promises of God, and it brings them in into as if it were. That's so incredibly important for us to understand, because the author of Hebrews in verse 6 tells us that apart from faith, we cannot please God. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And then he even says something that we kind of like joked around a little bit last week. Was he was saying, it's like, if anybody comes to God, they first must believe that he exists. Which you're like, well, of course, that's obvious. But is it? Because if we come to him by faith and believe that he exists, then it should follow that everything we see in Scripture is true. Do our lives align with the fact that God exists? And not only that, there's another challenge. And to believe that God rewards all of those who earnestly seek him. This is incredibly important. Faith has to be based on fact. And we tried to unpack some of that. Faith isn't a myth. Faith isn't just an opinion. Faith isn't conjecture, it isn't speculation, it's not superstition or presumption. No, faith is based on fact. All evidence, all proof has to be founded on facts because if faith is not the reality of what is hoped for, then we cannot live by faith. We cannot walk by faith. We cannot stand by faith. Where is all of this evidence to be found? Where we can say, faith is the evidence, it's the substance. Where can we find it? There's two things that are given to all humanity. Creation, 
We can look at creation and see that there is an intelligent designer. And we kind of poked at this a little bit last week where we said, listen, like even like an atheist has a problem of explaining what was the first cause. And like even if you go all the way back and then they just say, well, there was two things and they collided. Yeah, but what caused those two things to collide? Right? And so that's where it comes all the way back. It's like we know that like some level, some way, there is a superpower and a divine being, right? Like we, humanity has that notion. But also inside of our own hearts, we have this concept of soul and spirit where there's longing for love and relationship and connection, where there's this sense of eternity where everybody seems to fear death. And we hope that there's something more. But there's a third evidence that God has given us, and it's his word. Faith comes from hearing, Paul says in Romans 10. And hearing comes from the word of God. Faith comes from hearing. These words are our substance. It's fact. It's evidence of the things hoped for. It's proof of things that are unseen. Absolutely important. Faith has nothing to do with probabilities. Humanity believes in probabilities, meaning, yeah, it's probably true. Do not look at the Bible through the lens of a probability. You can't come to the Bible and be like, ah, it's probably true, so maybe. Faith is fact. Faith is concrete. It's not blind. It's not a leap in the dark. In fact, I love how um, George Mueller says this regarding probabilities. And he says that the province of faith begins where probabilities cease and sight and sense fail. Because appearances are not to be taken into account. Because the question is whether God has spoken it in his word. Faith is based on certainty, not probability. Another theologian described it this way. Faith is not a striving to believe that something shall be, thinking that if we just believe hard enough and click our heels three times and say there's no place like home, somehow it will come to pass. Just will it into existence. No, that's positive mental attitude. That's not faith. Faith can only find peace and rest if it's based on fact, not on probability. If it was on probability, you'd be anxious. You cannot persevere in your faith if it's not based on fact. If it's a probability, you will quickly abandon the faith. It's fact. That's why scripture says, consider it. Think carefully about it. And that's why this morning I want to so badly encourage you to see the uniqueness of this book, but then to also realize how badly God wants you to know him. I've been a pastor since 2003, and I've heard it so many times from people, I can never understand the Bible. I don't think God wants me to understand the Bible. And so we just kind of give up. Don't buy that lie for one moment. God wants you to know him. And if he wants you to know him, he will reveal himself to you through these words. God wants you to know him. John 17, 3 reminds us that eternal life is knowing him. It's knowing him. Well, how do you know him? 
How do you get to know Jesus more? Through prayer and the word. But then Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In fact, he's done it through these very great and precious promises so that you and I can participate in the divine. In other words, these promises are the hope that the Hebrew, or author of Hebrews was talking about. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, these promises. We take these promises as certain and we bring them in as a reality. God has given us these very great and precious promises. Friends, we understand how this works at a human level. We know that I can only trust someone to the degree that I know someone, right? Like that's how you grow in relationship. That's how you, you don't just like fall in love. That is a stinking hallmark lie. You, you, you grow in love. You don't just fall out of love. You slowly walk away from love, right? So it's like we understand that we, get, we have to know each other. And if God wants us to know him, what should that tell us about his heart? He made a way for you and I to understand who he is. And he's graced us. He's gifted us with his word. Okay? So what I want to do for the rest of my time, and it, 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 like this is a little bit different. I'm not preaching. I'm going to be more teaching. And I'm going to be walking through some, like, some overview and some tips and general principles of how we ought to engage the Bible. But first and foremost, I want to start with recapping what we talked about in 2023. If you were with us when we went through 2 Timothy... We saw how Paul was encouraging Timothy, and we, we saw the, the importance of multi-generational discipleship. Timothy is a young pastor. He's a young church influencer left in Ephesus, and he's struggling because there's some persecution thing, and Paul's writing this in prison, and he says, like, hey, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, which is another way of saying be strong in the faith. Well, how do you become strong in the faith. And then in chapter, what we see is in chapter 2, verse 14, he says like, hey, you know the faith of those who come before you. It's like, remind them of these things. This is useless and leads to the ruin of all those. Le- Listen, verse 15. Be diligent and present yourself to God as one approved. Right? He, he's saying like, hey, you, you can do this. Like, it's important for you and I to be able to know how to handle Scripture correctly. You're right, because in this church, what people are doing is they're just taking things and they're bringing, like, like here, for instance, a lot of us say this, and I'm not trying to dog on anybody, but it's just like, what it means to me is this. And they're just kind of like peri, peri, um, cherry picking and just kind of taking things and making it subjective truth. Like, this is what I think it means, and here's what I think this is, and all this kind of stuff. And they're bringing in all of these false truths into the church. And Paul's saying to Timothy, like, no, no, learn to correctly handle Scripture so that way you can teach people right. If we continue on in 2 Timothy, Avoid irreverence and empty speech, since those who engage it will produce even more ungodliness. And if we were to jump to chapter 3, verse 14, he's like, listen, you know 
who know the scriptures, which you've learned and you firmly believed from those who taught you. Friends, listen, if you are over 50 years old, one of the greatest things you can do in your life is to teach and model a life that is embedded in scripture to those who are younger than you. If you are a parent, if you are a grandparent, this is so important. Paul is not so much saying to Timothy, like, you've seen how I lived. What he's actually referencing is, you've seen those from infancy. Like, you've known the scriptures from infancy. How would he know that? Mom, grandma, modeled it, taught it, shown it. They're reading it. It's not just there on a coffee table collecting dust. And he's saying to you, he's like, and you know from infancy, you've known the scriptures which are able, like this, like, if you come to God and believe he exists, like, this, this is true. Scriptures are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Jump to verse 17. I'm sorry, 16. Newt, I love you. You're the best. All, all scripture is inspired. Question, did they have the New Testament at this point? No. So what is he talking about? The Old Testament. And that's inspired by God. And it's profitable. You want to know what can give you the greatest return on investment ever? Scripture. In fact, we have a promise. Because faith takes hold of the things that are hoped for as promises. And God says that my word will not return void, which means it will always accomplish what it's meant to accomplish, which means there will always be a profitable return on that investment. All of scripture is profitable for teaching, for understanding truth, for rebuking, for realigning, for bringing correction, for correcting and training in righteousness how to live by faith and walk by faith and stand by faith. And that's why Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 12, that God's word is alive and active. It's unlike anything else in the world. It gets right to the heart. It cuts through it all. And oftentimes, is it not true? We come to the Bible thinking we're reading it, but the reality is it's reading you. And that's the point. It's alive and it's active. So when we come to scriptures, friends, we have to believe that God rewards those who seek him. If you come to scripture to know him, he will reward you for doing so. And the greatest reward is knowing him. Okay? Absolutely important. He wants to be known and he wants us to know him within the scriptures. Old to New Testament. And it's not just for the academics. It's not just for those who know Greek and Hebrew. It's not just for those who are the experts who could pay to teach and all those folks. No, 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 no. That's a lie. Acts 4.13, which makes a good Wisconsin boy feel really good. Peter and John were arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're saying to him, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are like, we're amazed. They observed the boldness of John, and they realized, they dumb. 
They're uneducated. They're fishermen. And they're doing this? Well, where did that come from? Was it on their own ability and competence? No, it was because of the Holy Spirit, which is what matters most as we approach Scripture, okay? This needs to be understood. What's needed in order for you and I to be able to understand Scripture? A relationship with Jesus I don't know if you've ever encountered someone who said, especially who, who, who doesn't know Jesus, who says, I read the Bible and I don't see it, I don't get it. It's no different than me trying to go, I don't see no elephant here. There's a reason for that. And scriptures tell us the reason for that. Because when you say yes and you put your faith and you trust on Jesus, for the repentance, for the forgiveness of your sins, and for the newness of life, the Holy Spirit comes and lives and dwells within you. And we are told by Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. And he says, this is what we speak. We don't speak this in words taught by human wisdom but in words taught by the Spirit. In other words, he's like saying, like everything I'm teaching you about God from the Old Testament, isn't, it didn't come from humanity's idea. This, this actually came from the Holy Spirit. And then he continues to say, it's like, listen, it's expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, you're going to have a very difficult, may I say, impossible time to understand the scriptures. And that, that's like, What? Which in some sense should give us some caution, but at the same time should give us some like, like, grace and patience because it, it, it actually reveals the, the fact that for you and I to understand scripture, the Holy Spirit has to be the one that reveals it to us. It's not purely based upon our academics or uh, competence or full understanding of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and what happened there in First Kings chapter 22 and what this person was saying. Like all of that matters, but it's ultimately dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We're promised that the Holy Spirit will bring these things to light. Jesus even taught his disciples in John 16, before they went, he died and was buried, resurrected, and ascended. He said, listen, when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he, he will guide you into all truth. He will be the one that does this. 2 Peter 1, 21. All scripture is God-breathed. That's what Paul said. Now, here's what Peter says. Men were carried by the Holy Spirit. None of this is man's idea. None of it. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you know, Nicodemus is like, I don't, what's going on? How are you doing this? And he says like, hey, listen, you've got to be born again. 
to, to understand the things of the kingdom. He's like, you know, you're born of the water, I'm born of the spirit. Like, you've got to be born of the spirit to understand things of the kingdom. He's like, and you, you understand this principle, like, you see the wind, you know it's there, but you can't, like, actually see it or know where it's coming or where it's going. So it is so with those of the spirit. And he's like, oh, how can this be, right? And he's like, aren't you Israel's teacher? And I love how Jesus explains, he's like, he's like we speak of what we know, I'm speaking of what I know. There's an elephant here. Well, if it put me in the shoes and I like, I don't see it. What do I speak? I just see chaos. But some people are like, well, what I know is this. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, if you have faith, you, you see what's there. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, all you see is this mess. So the Holy Spirit is the one that guides us into all truth. Now, because we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one that leads us into truth, that, that, like, that doesn't mean that now you should know everything or you should understand everything, okay? Because there's, there's, there's an aspect where the Holy Spirit reveals what he wants to reveal when he needs to reveal it to you, right? And that's why we call faith a journey. Relationship is a journey. We grow in this. And so what we do is we continue to seek him, trusting that the Holy Spirit will guide us into truth, make things clear to us as we continue to go on, and that God will reward us. Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, that you and I only know in part. We're, we're fallen people. We are finite. We're not infinite. We're not God. We're ultimately dependent upon him for everything. And so we only know in parts here on this earth. And I don't even think that we would know everything in eternity because that would actually disqualify God because God is eternal. He's, you can't fully know him. He's infinite. But then there's this verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29, which is like one of my favorite verses. It says, the things revealed to us are for us. Oh, but there are some things that aren't revealed, and that's for God. And so we need to give ourselves a little bit of grace and patience when it comes to understanding Scripture. Don't give up. Just because you read it, I don't get it. That's okay. You may not ever get it, but it doesn't mean it isn't true. Right, Just because I say I don't see it doesn't make fact now false. You keep leaning in, keep seeking, he will reward. And one of my favorite stories is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, he was asked by someone after he was preaching, and he brought to him this difficult passage, and he says to uh, D.L. Moody, how do you explain this passage to which D.L. Moody said, I don't. But how do you interpret it? I don't interpret it. Well, how do you understand it? I don't understand it. Well, what do you do with it? I believe it. Well, how? I believe many things I don't understand. Amen. Right? And here's the thing about Scripture. It's supernatural. It's amazing. I love Psalm 19, verse 7. I would encourage you, commit this one to memory. The instruction of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. So I want to share with you some amazing facts about this extraordinary book. It, don't judge me. I'm going to nerd out a wee bit. This is important for you to know. 
You can Google all of this. Siri, Alexa, chat, GBT. Okay, stop. The Bible has 66 books contained in one book. Okay, the Bible just means book, but there's 66 of them from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's written by real people, real situations, real motivations with an absolute rawness that's unique in antiquity. Any literature in the ancient Near East that talked about its heroes, its kings, and its leaders never, ever exposed their faults, ever. The Bible doesn't hide it at all. All of our heroes are fully exposed as sinful, which is the point and which makes it absolutely beautiful. It's written over a period of 1,500 years. And during that 1,500-year time span, about 40 different authors with a diversity of backgrounds and locations wrote this. We have a shepherd, priest, prophet, tent maker, fisherman, tax collector, physician, a singer, a farmer, a political leader, military general, kings, etc. Written in the wilderness, dungeon, hillside, palace, prison, on the road, exiled on an island, in the midst of war, in a time of joy, time of sorrow, war, peace, exile, three continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and all of it, God breathed, without error, without contradiction, for the sole purpose to unite all things in Christ. Okay? Now, within all of that, there are different genres, and we interpret a genre based upon its literary style. In the Old Testament, we have the law, we have history, we have wisdom, poetry, prophecy, Okay, and in the New Testament, we have gospel, we have the parables, we have history, we have letters or epistles in apocalyptic literature. So it's like this mass diversity from people, locations, and style. Now, let me nerd out a little bit more. All colleges and all academic systems rely back on antiquity and certain books of history, like Tacitus and, and like, you know, Pliny's history and Livy's history of Rome. And at best, we have partial manuscripts, and most of those manuscripts are written about a thousand years after any of these events happened. And we take those as fact. Now, the Bible <laughs> has over 5,000 over 5,000 manuscripts which were surfacing 50 years after the last letter was written in the Bible. And we still have them today. We can piece it together and see that it's absolutely consistent from then all the way to now. And yet people still struggle and strive to prove, no, it is wrong. But we'll take all of these other history books and say it's fact. We have all of this proof. God is trying so hard to show us, this is my heart. I'm trying to help you see me within here. It's alive and active. This is more than a book to study. It's absolutely breathtaking when you just look at facts. Just look at facts. If you believe or not believe, fine. Be a forensic investigator. Look at at the facts. You will be surprised. So, 1,500 years, 40 different authors, different continents, different languages. Someone, I don't know who, showed how the whole Bible is hyperlinked. And they created this image. I'm going to show this image. It, this is overwhelming. 
This represents Genesis through Revelation. And all of those lines are referencing different verses or ideas and things that are hyperlinked to different parts of the Bible. You're going to try to tell me that this is man-made? We're too dumb to do that. <laughs> Just, like, 1,500 years, 40 different authors, inerrant. All speaking one massive meta-narrative, one story. Redemption. The Bible's ultimate main purpose is to show us Jesus. Jesus said in the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 27, to those guys, he's like, hey, let's talk about all that happened at the cross and all this kind of stuff. And he taught them everything in the Old Testament concerning him, helping them see that it was all about the Christ. Jesus said in John 5 that all scriptures bear witness to him. So everything in the Bible is bearing witness to Jesus, which is the main point of this whole book, which is why it is astounding when you look at Genesis all the way through Revelation, everything is hyperlinked to tell the meta-narrative of redemption. Ultimately, it's this. The Bible shows us that we are sinners. Our hearts are lost. They are dead because we have chosen autonomy and to go our own way and we want a different God and all of that to the very degree. And it doesn't leave us there because then it promises us grace and redemption and restoration and, re and fulfillment of all of these promises in and through Jesus. That's the meta-narrative of all of Scripture. It's remarkable. It's alive and it's active. And within this meta narrative, you guys with me? Okay. Now we're going to get to the, I'm going to quote Nacho Libre, to the needy greedy. Okay. Some of you are like, I get it. Some of you are like, what? To which now my kids are like, it's so bad. <laughs> to which one? Like, good or I'm so bad? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I want now to kind of like start to equip you with tools and how to approach scripture, okay? If the meta-narrative is talking about the redemption, about how we're sinners and that Jesus came, right? He died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended, then there has to be a framework that's built in from Genesis to Revelation that tell us this meta-narrative, and the way I'm going to explain it to you is the way that I was taught, and I find it very helpful for me, and I hope it's helpful for you. And if it's not, just throw it away, okay? This is not doctrine. This is just a tool. So I want to encourage you, think about it this way. Act one, God creates the world. He's created his kingdom. He's established his kingdom called creation. Genesis 1 and 2. That's act one. And we can even jump to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, where we see the bookend that tells us that all of creation was created by him and for him. He is the king over all of creation. Act 2 is the rebellion in the kingdom. It's the fall. And that's Genesis 3. So Act 1, Genesis 1 and 2. Act 3, 
is Genesis 3. It's the fall. Act 3 is redemption initiated. The promise of the gospel shows up first in Genesis 3. She will bear a son, and he will crush your head, speaking to the serpent. Like that was a promise of redemption. And then what we have is from Genesis 4 all the way to Malachi, this act of redemption being initiated. And we can break that down into two, okay? Which I would say now, don't judge, are scenes. Because with an act, you've got to have scenes. So scene one is God developing or creating a people for himself. Genesis 4 through Deuteronomy. Scene two is the promised land, which is Joshua to Malachi. And then at the end of Malachi is the end of the Old Testament. And from Malachi to Jesus' birth is a 400-year period of silence. Then Jesus comes. Then we have the New Testament, which is now Act 4, the coming of the King, which is redemption accomplished, which is the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Act 5, the spreading of the news of the king. This is the mission of the church. Go make disciples of all nations. This is Acts to Jude. And again, it's broken down into two scenes. Jerusalem to Rome, and then from Rome to the ends of the earth. And the last act is Act 6, which is what we're going to start studying next week. The return of the king, don't think, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but you can't because that's awesome. It's the return of the king. Redemption completed. So when you look at scripture from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation, you just see this beautiful meta narrative. It's all redemptive. And this framework helps us see how it all connects, how it's telling one grand story, and it ends with Jesus coming. Revelation 21, 3 through 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 when you read that. And then just think of everything in between. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Is this true? Yeah. I'm bringing it in. All right, now, even more tactical here. How do we study this? How do we study this? I wanna encourage you as strongly as I can and with as much grace, please hear this with grace. In your small groups, in your personal time, in your conversations, try to stop saying what it means to me What it means to me is this. Now, I get it because there is going to be a point somewhere in this appropriate study of Scripture where we need to make it applicable. But listen, there is a general principle in all of Scripture is that a text can never mean what it never meant for the original audience. 
It has to mean what it meant to the original audience. Yes, God wrote scripture through people divine or inspired by the Holy Spirit. It has eternal relevance, but it's also situated in history. And so because of that beautiful mystery, we can't just go like, oh, I'm going to pull out some new thought, a new idea, a new teaching. That's called a cult. It has to mean what it meant back then. And so when you first approach scripture, you have to try what, what scholars would call exit, exit Jesus, which I joked in seminary. I was like, does that mean exit Jesus? Because that's what it feels like. But it was like... <laughs> Sorry, that was so lame. But it's just like, how do we study scripture and what it meant in the then and there? You have to try to understand what it meant then and there before you start to think about the here and now. You have to do that. Now, I get it. There's devotional reading, which is great because that's nurturing your relationship with the Lord. But to be one who correctly handles scripture, you have to know the then and there in order to be able to apply what it means in the here and now. Okay, so this is absolutely important. So we got to think about this. Like, how do we study scripture within this lens of context? Like, how do we start to kind of grab hold of what certain things meant in the then and there? So for instance, I hope this sticks. It works for me. I don't know if it works for you because I've never shared this with anybody in my life. So hopefully this works. Okay, so when I talk about trying to discover context, I think of like flying to a destination, okay? So if I were, let's just say, going to read the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, okay? Reading Luke 15 verses 11 through 32, that's like me being in the airport. I'm going through all this stuff. It's my immediate context. But then like if I get on the the tarmac, I'm in the airplane. Now I got to start thinking about what's all around the story, Words have meaning in sentences, but those sentences can only have meaning within a structure of a paragraph. So in other words, you can't just read the prodigal son's story and get the depth of the then and there without reading what came before it and what came after it, right? So oftentimes we preach the prodigal son's story without teaching the first two stories of Luke 15, First was the parable of the lost sheep, and then it was the parable of the lost coin, and then it was the parable of the lost sons. It's meant, that's how Jesus taught it. And then we got to go, okay, now if I'm up this level, let's go up to 30,000 feet or 15,000 feet. Who's the audience? Well, in Luke 14, Jesus is being, he's interacting with Pharisees, a ruler of the, the Pharisaic party. And then Luke 15, 1 tells us that now tax collectors and sinners are there. So he's got this audience of the religious, moral elite, the holy people, and the sinners. And so Jesus teaches this parable. And every single story is something's lost, something's found, and there's rejoicing And each parable, the value of what is lost and found increases. And it has shock value to where all of a sudden it gets to, oh, the older son is the one that actually doesn't become found. He doesn't come home. Then if we go up to 20,000 feet, we start thinking, what is the main point of the gospel of Luke? The son of man came to seek sinners. So when we place that story within its context and then we go up higher to the meta-narrative, how does this fit within the story of redemption? 
we have to think about these things in context. It's absolutely important because otherwise you don't feel the, the radicalness and the punch to the gut that Jesus gave in that parable, right? Like we can't skip the sheep and the coin just to get to the prodigal son because it feels good for us. And really the story's not even about the younger son, nor is the story even about the older son. It's about the father who's come to seek and save the lost by sending his son Jesus, you have to look at the context. You got to look at the history. You got to look at the setting. You can't just, what we call proof text, you can't just take a verse out and just pluck it out of thin air and go, this is what it is. Great example, Philippians 4.13. Anybody have that verse memorized? Come on, someone say it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you just take that verse in isolation and you go, this is what it means to me. I can squat 400 pounds because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You think I'm joking? My roommate said that all the time. He was a football player. I was like, dude, you're a heretic. You can't do that. What Paul meant, if you look at the context, he's talking about learning how to be content. He, he knows what it's like to have nothing, and he knows what it's like to have a lot. So he's learned how to be content, and that's why he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content if, I have, if I'm dead broke, and if I have millions of dollars. I'm good either way. But then you start to bring it into the larger context of Philippians. And listen, you don't need a commentary to do this. Here's, here's why I say that. I know that the vast majority of you do not read these letters from beginning to end in one sitting. Do it. How many of you, if you got a letter from, let's just say, your loved one you haven't seen in three, six months, wrote you a five-page letter that you would go to page four, third paragraph, third sentence, and read it, and deduce the meaning of the whole letter? We can't study scripture that way. It's not intended to go that way. Now, the Holy Spirit can inspire and stir us up into those things, absolutely. But we have to be able to be people who are good at observation. We have to look at the context, what's happening, who's saying it, what's the author, where's the location. And we have so many tools at our disposal to be able to piece that together. Because after we observe, then we start to get into what does this mean? What did it mean then and there for that church, for that people, for that time? And then just start to understanding and go, are these eternal principles that come over and make sense and even have the same meaning in the here and now? And once we land into that, then we can start to go, and here's, yeah, I'm going there. I'm going there. One of the things pastors really dislike hearing is, man, I just want to go deep. It's not deep enough. I want the meat. Give me the meat. To which a good pastor would say, then do it. Do it. Do what it says. When people say they want to go deep and they want the meat, they just want more information. They want more academic. They want more knowledge. But that's, scripture is like, yeah, that's great, but scripture is meant to be lived out. So we observe, we interpret, but it can't stop there because now you got to go, how does this affect me? How does this affect us? How does this affect us as a church, as a people? 
right? Like we have to get to that place. It's that go and do likewise statement that Jesus always gave when he taught. Now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Because we are to be people worthy of imitation. You go back to Paul to Timothy. You've known those and how they lived. You've seen it. You've watched their lives. You heard how they spoke. You heard what their values were. If you want to go deep and you want the meat, it has nothing to do with what you know. It's everything to do with living it out by faith. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. You have to study Scripture alone, you need to study Scripture in a small community, and you need to be in the Word together as a church. All of them are important. This is eternal life, that they may know you. He's given us these great and precious promises. And I want to end this way. I want to talk about how this affects how we pray. Because not only did God give us the word, and you have to learn how to pray as you study scripture. And I think a lot of us don't approach God in the way that God would want us to approach him. So I'm going to practice some scripture, the teachings that I just said as I walk this through, and I hope you can see it. If we go to Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 2, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Master, teach us how to pray. And if you were to stop and observe, like, why would they say that? I mean, they know all of the prayers that they have to do as, like, Jews. Like, they've been through this. They've seen all these things. Why would they ask him to learn how to pray? It's because Jesus prayed differently, and he oftentimes said a word that caught them off guard. And he says, when you pray, say, our Father, our Father. And and, and if we don't understand the context of this, we're just going to read that and just keep moving on. But we got to understand how revolutionary that word is. Abba, Dad. Well, no Jew, no Pharisee, no rabbi would ever say Abba when they prayed. They would never instruct any Jew to ever approach God that way because you don't even say God's name. You don't even put a vowel in his name. We have a Yahweh. No literature had this. So what Jesus was saying was absolutely unique. And if we were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked, unashamed, nothing to hide, completely there, not afraid when God came. In fact, they were eagerly looking forward to the time when God would come in the cool evening to hang out and chat. But then when they sinned, they realized they were naked. And then they hid and now God is not one whom, like, is enjoyable. Now God is someone whom they're afraid of, one whom they have to, like, hide from. And when they think that he's going to come, they're gonna, he's going to punish them. And so they hid, and God came and offered the process and the promise of redemption. And then when the Gospels start, before Jesus did any ministry, he was baptized, and heaven was torn open, And a dove descended on him, and then Abba spoke. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Abba solidified the identity, the relationship status 
with Jesus before Jesus went into ministry. And then the next story is immediately he went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, which was every temptation to attack his identity and the fatherhood of God. If you are the son of God, then do this. If God was really this, then why this? And Jesus stood on that and he taught and prayed, Abba. And so when he told the disciples, when you pray, say, Abba, that changes everything. So when you pray and you bring scripture into your heart, church, listen, he wants you to know him. In fact, he's so pleased with you that he's willing to say in front of anybody, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. I'm well pleased with you. Do you pray that way? Do you come to the Father that way? Because that's what the context teaches us. So even though I know that we did like kind of classroom type stuff, I really do want you to wrestle with this. Like, is God your dad? I mean, that's a revolutionary thought. Father, I pray, God, that your spirit would solidify your word, that it would encourage our hearts, that it would challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would take whatever words I use to equip your children. Lord, I pray that people in this room, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would have a new excitement, passion, or desire, or hunger to get in the word that they wouldn't see it as a book that's full of like puzzles or codes or mysteries, but as this beautiful picture of your heart for humanity, that they would come to it knowing that you want to be known and that you've given us your Holy Spirit to be able to know you more and more, to grow in our faith. Lord, I pray for us as a church that this year would be a year where we can say, by faith, by faith. So Lord, I pray that you would stir up a hunger for your word. And I also pray, Lord, that our prayer life will be revolutionized by coming to you as our Abba. In Christ's name.